Don't lose Luke 9, but you might like to turn back to page 962, the very end of the Old Testament, the last words of the prophetic books. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. Moses, the great lawgiver, the penultimate word of the prophets, remember the law of Moses. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the people to their neighbors. That is the Greek translation of that verse, which would have been uh, largely being used by some of the first readers of the New Testament. The hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the people to their neighbors, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. What an awesome way to end the prophetic words. You can hear these words ringing down the ages into New Testament times. The warning to keep the law and the sending of Elijah, the prophet who... um, David describes as the law enforcer, the one who encountered those prophets of Baal, who stood out for the law. And the only hope of averting the curse is the turning of the hearts. And as we turn over into Luke chapter 9, we see Moses and Elijah. And we hear the voice of God. This is my son. Listen to him. And I wanted to thank those of you who were praying for me last week in Turkey as we were looking at the question of how you translate the son of God into Muslim languages. All I can say to you at this stage is we had a great sense of the Holy Spirit leading us I believe we've done some very good work. would value your prayers as I go to America later this week uh, as a follow-up for that. Um, the results will be published probably in a couple of weeks' time, but that depends on other people than me. But you can imagine, this is my son, listen to him, has been ringing through my mind and my heart as we've reflected on this. Why from this particular thing? Because this um, incident of the transfiguration is at the center of the book that I'm currently working on, on thinking biblically about Islam. And I thought that perhaps one of the best ways I could help you to understand what I try to do is to read a bit of the Bible with the Islamic context in mind. So uh, excuse me if I blow your minds a little bit, but it doesn't do you any harm. And if you Don't get anything else. Get this message. This is my son. Listen to him.
Who are you to listen to? Amen. So, I'm, I'm sorry, this, the color scheme never works so well when you shift the thing from one computer to another. So, we're looking today at Holy Mountains. Now, every Sunday, you come here and you sit here in front of three holy mountains. I hope you've noticed them. And the children who I've asked who go to this school are able to tell me that that one is Ararat. And that reminds us of the rainbow covenant, the commitment of God to his world. I hope you've noticed that I've chosen a rainbow background for my slides. And they know that this one, they may not know the name of it, but that's the hill where Jesus got crucified. And that's where we can make sense of God being committed to the world. God can't be committed to the world without the cross. Now, what about the one in the middle? Most of them don't know what that one is. You would expect the one in the middle probably to be Sinai or Horeb, you know, where we got Moses and Elijah. But the Cowley fathers, you know, those monks that commissioned the, the, the making of these, were terribly clever. They knew that all of Sinai, all the times that Moses went up Sinai, which is at least four, and Elijah, are all caught up and fulfilled on Tabor, the Mount of Transfiguration. So that's why we've got the blinds out from outside of the Mount of Transfiguration. So here's a sermon to help you... um, Think about this in the following boring sermons that are going to come in the next... No, 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 I didn't say that. I didn't say that. (laughs) But if ever you're wondering what to think in a sermon, think, this is my son, listen to him. Okay, what's going on on the mountain of transfiguration? We've got Moses appearing with Jesus, the lawgiver, the one who went out and confronted Pharaoh, the one who brought his people out in the Exodus, the one who formed the people, the one who God gave all, not only the law, but all the details of the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices, all that in Moses. We have Elijah, the greatest of the prophets. And by now in Jewish thinking, and still now today in Jewish thinking, a paradigm of zeal. What does it mean to be zealous for God? Look at Elijah. Fighting for what? Monotheism. Against idolatry. What's happening here is that people are seeing these and seeing somehow that all this is fulfilled in Jesus Now, what are these mountains about? The mountain that we read about in Exodus and in Kings are both about God's presence and about God's holiness. Did you notice the cloud in each case? The clouds are symbolic of the presence of God. You can follow that particularly through Exodus through numbers, through all sorts of places 
in the Old Testament. But the going up of the the mountain is indicating that God isn't just anywhere, and you've got to be very careful. I think this is particularly emphasized in Exodus. We read the incident when Moses goes up the mountain in Exodus 34. And he goes alone. And he goes pleading to see God. And yet, just a few chapters earlier, this is what we read in Exodus 24. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. What's happened in between? Well, while Moses was up the mountain getting all the details of the tabernacle, which was to symbolize the presence of God amongst them, And the sacrifices, which were going to enable the presence of God amongst them. What were the people doing? They were building the golden calf. And when Moses came down the mountain, there was judgment. And Moses is terrified that they've lost the presence of God. And now only Moses can go back up. And he can't see the face of God anymore. And as he goes down, his face is so shining that the people can't stand it. The holiness of God that has to deal with sin. And at the same time, the people's longing for the presence of God. And God's desire to be present among us. That's what it's all about. And of course, it's also about God speaking. Up the mountain, Moses hears the law. Up the mountain, Elijah gets his message. And underlying it all, it's all about God's promises. God is committed to the rainbow covenant. And this people of Israel, and all that goes with it, with the law and the prophets, is all about God's promises. That's in the Bible. What about the Quran? The Quran, of course, has Moses and Elijah. Plenty of them. I'll tell you a little bit about that in a moment. But it doesn't have the presence of God. Slight hint of the presence of God in the story of the burning bush in the Quran. That's another thing. But in general, Muslims will tell you that God is not present. He hears, he sees all the rest of it. But he is so transcendent that we cannot have the presence of God here. God is great. You could describe God as holy in Islamic thinking. But basically, the treatment of sin in Islamic thinking is a God of justice who will punish sin rather than a holy God who cannot stand sin. It's different. God speaks. That's the primary thing and the primary revelation in Islam. You don't need... This is my son. Listen to him. You've got, this is the Quran. Listen to this. 
And rather than the whole thing of the covenants which lead to Calvary, we have God's guidance. That is what Muslims believe that we need. In other words, if you can see what's coming down here, in Islamic thinking we need the law and we need the prophets through whom God will speak and give us his guidance. It's different. So, the Quranic Moses, and there's a huge amount about Moses in the Quran, meets, uh, gets commissioned at the burning bush, he gets sent to Pharaoh, you have all the stuff about the plagues and all that kind of stuff, he takes the people out, he receives the law, and he copes with the rebellious people in the wilderness. He does not get anything about the tabernacle, the sacrifices, anything like that at all. The stuff about God's presence, God's holiness, is missing. The Quranic Elijah is only referred to very briefly. All you've got about Elijah is the confrontation with the prophets of Baal. You do not have him meeting with God on the mountain. The Bible tells us that the law and the prophets are good, but they are simply not enough. So Moses, at the end of his life, is up here on Mount Nebo, looking out to the promised land. That's the view he had. He was not allowed in. Do you know the death of Moses is referred to ten times in the Torah? The Torah ends with the death of Moses. The prophet, the law, cannot get you into the land. Even Moses is not allowed in there. What about Elijah? Elijah actually gets taken up to heaven outside the land. You can go back and check this for yourself. You know when Joshua goes into the land, the Jordan opens up, he goes in through Jericho, Ai, and camps at Gilgal. Elijah, when he goes with Elisha, Starts off from Gilgal, goes to Bethel, which is next to Ai, to Jericho, hits the water with his staff, the water parts, and he goes out again. Isn't that devastating? The greatest of the prophets dies outside the land. All the prophets in the world did not keep Israel in the land. They were exiled. And even at the time of Jesus, they were waiting for the full return from the exile. The law and the prophets are not enough. Can you see all this gathered up in this fabulous symbolism of the transfiguration? The glory that is there. And what happens at the transfiguration Peter thinks, let's keep them all. But actually, Moses and Elijah disappear, sink into significance. All is caught up and transformed in the person of Jesus, who fulfills both the law and the prophets. Now, what does Islam do? 
Islam effectively reverses the transfiguration. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are all considered equal. They're all prophets, all the same. We make no difference between them, says the Quran. In fact, it's a little more serious than that. Because Islam raises the importance of law. Hugely important in Islamic thinking. It sees the whole of biblical history as prophetic history and effectively takes out the covenants. So, although Jesus is there in the Quran, and you hear more about that tonight, and quite an important figure, in effect, most Muslims don't think about Jesus very much at all. Rather, they focus on the law and the prophets and on somebody who gathers together that legal function, giving the law, forming the people, with the monotheistic zeal that enforces the law of Elijah in Muhammad, who in Islamic thinking supersedes all. What does that do for us in our thinking about Islam? Well, first I want to suggest that Moses and Elijah are good things. Limited, but good. The story of the law and the prophets is not something that's strange to us. And there's a whole lot of stuff within Islam that is actually good. And that we can affirm. And that we can talk about. The grief is... What is missing? They haven't got, this is my son, listen to them. They have a zeal for God, but it's unenlightened. And what is it that's missing? What was it that Moses and Elijah and Jesus were talking about up that mountain? Jesus' exodus that he was going to accomplish at Jerusalem. It was the cross. It's devastating. The cross is cut out of Islam. There is no Calvary Mountain. And that's the passion. We need to get ourselves to the cross and get Muslims to the cross. Well, I hope you've had just a little glimpse of the glory of Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. But of course, the disciples didn't stay up there, and neither should we. We are coming down into the nitty-gritty of the world, and a nitty-gritty of the world that's full of Muslims. And as we go down, brothers and sisters, can we go down under the shadow of the cross? And can it change life for us as it did for the disciples? As they came down, if you will look in Luke chapter 9, the first thing they do is meet a demon-possessed boy. Moses and Elijah dealt with overt idolatry. By the time of Jesus, 
The Jews were no longer building idols, but they were doing plenty of things that got them in touch with the demonic. You will not find Muslims worshipping idols, but you will find amongst many Muslims there are things that put them in touch with the demonic. So these two boys, the one in the red shirt and the one in the black, whose father was kicked to death on the way home from the mosque, their family is riddled with black magic. They're now grown up. The one in red is on drugs. Their older sister has come to Christ. There's good news there. But note that as we get the dealing with the demonic here, Jesus goes on again to predict his death. It is the cross. It is the death of Jesus. And the death of Jesus alone that can deal with the demonic, with the sicknesses, with all the struggles that ordinary Muslim people go through day by day. They know from the Quran that Jesus is a healer and a raiser from the dead. And many of them are very open and even maybe expect disciples of Jesus to be able to minister to them and pray for them in the name of Jesus so that they can see healing and freedom. Oh, there are stories behind all these pictures. This woman was severely mentally ill. That's why she was there with, alone with her little boy in front of my Christmas tree. They came along when nobody else was there because she is so shunned by her community. So, dealing with the problems. Dealing with competition. The next thing that happens is an argument about who's the greatest. So much of our discussion with Muslims is about who's the greatest. Is America bigger than Al-Qaeda? Yeah? Are the Muslims building a bigger mosque than the church? Probably yes, because they do it that way. Competition, competition, competition. The cross changes competition. Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Dealing with hostility. Hostility to Jesus. The Samaritan opposition. So many parallels between the Samaritans of Jesus' time and Muslims in Britain. What did the disciples want to do? They want to bring down fire from heaven. Who did that? 2 Kings, chapter 1. Elijah was the one that brought down fire from heaven on the Samaritans. Jesus says, no, not that way. You don't know what sort of people you are. The Son of Man didn't come to destroy. He came to save. And what was the cost of salvation? The cross. And then there's a whole chapter on mission. We'll hear about mission tonight. But I just want to point out again, mission in the way of the cross. Jesus says, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Verse 3 of chapter 10. Don't take a purse or bag or sandals. Go poor. Go vulnerable. Go in the way of the cross. And finally, they come to the lawyer who asks the question, really, 
what is the law about? And we get the answer. David's Good Samaritan. Here's my Good Samaritan. This is one of my former students from Malaysia who is now a trustee for Islamic Relief. Smashing down the prejudices, smashing down all of our preconceived ideas and calling us, listen to Jesus. And what did Jesus say to that lawyer? The lawyer knew who the good neighbor was and Jesus said, You go and do the same. Listen to the sun up the mountain. Recognize the transformation that is brought by the cross. Be moved with compassion for people who are zealous for God but have the cross and all that it stands for cut out of their faith. Go down the mountain ready to take up that cross and glorify Christ.